welcome to Game Breaking Feature, the podcast where we analyze and discuss common elements of modern video game design and development. My name is Stephen Bennett, and in this episode, we'll be talking about random number generators, or as it's more affectionately known, RNG. Behind the scenes of almost every one of our favorite games is an element of randomness, and today we're going to dive into the whys, hows, and WTFs of RNG. To help me discuss random number generators is a man who worships at the Church of RNGesus, but really only on Christmas and RNGster. It's my good friend Jared Bruner. Jared, how you doing, man? Good, good. Yeah, it's uh, you know the holiest of days is Dota International, where um, in that game, if you buy the battle pass, there's a literal roulette wheel that you can spin to get loot. Um, they're not even trying to hide it anymore. No, I saw no, no, no. there's one of the uh, like NBA games coming up, and I think they just have a casino in it. Cool. I'm pretty sure it just has a casino. Yeah. And then like EA goes before Congress and tries to argue that it's not gambling. It's it's pretty crazy. <laughs> pretty pretty wild. Pretty wild if you ask me. Random number generators, Jared. Yes, I, I've I heard know nothing. I know nothing about them. I know nothing about random number generators except for the Google searching I did like ten minutes before we started this episode. But Jared, that's why we bring on awesome guests. Uh, joining us today, he's a VFX artist at Gunfire Games, the studio behind Remnant from the Ashes. Please welcome to the show Jeffrey Larkin. Jeff. How you doing, man? I'm good. How are you guys doing? Doing very well. Good. It's uh, it's it's morning time. I'm not a morning person, but I am. Uh, I'm amped up. I'm amped. I've got my coffee. I am. I got a sweater on, a light sweater, because it's finally feeling like fall here in Southern California. So uh, yeah, it's not a bad morning. Where are you at in the world, Jeff? I'm in Austin, Texas. So Austin, we're. Uh, how's the weather? It's it's good. It's been dipping into the 40s this week. Uh, probably a lot like Southern California, but. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's been nice. I've had a jacket on all week, and uh, with daylight savings time this weekend, I've had uh, a lot of good rest. Yeah, you nice. got an extra hour. You got an extra hour. I forgot about that. No. <laughs> Except that now it's just always dark. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Living the dream. And that's where that's where Gunfire Games is. They're they're based out of Austin. Yes, sir. How long how long have you been uh, How long have you been there? Not long. Maybe about seven months. Oh wow! So you just jumped in like right before Remnant. Yeah, it was really great timing for me because everybody all was... The, all the work was done before you got there? <laughs> Not quite. I actually got okay. to work on quite a lot. I did a lot of the swamp area, uh, the basic creatures, the mini bosses, um, working on Ixilis, the giant twin moths, was, uh, was a blast. So I was really lucky to be able to get to work so much on a game that was so close to release. Yeah, that game has a really good look. I, I really enjoy the aesthetic of it. I haven't gotten to play it yet. Uh, I'm trying yeah, to talk Steve that, into into jumping on to some co-op oh, with me. I'm sold. I'm sold. We're getting this game. All right. Maybe 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 a good stream game for us too. We'll we'll figure that out. Definitely. Well, Definitely. Maybe we'll talk about that a little bit later. So I'm curious, what is a VFX artist like? When you say you worked on on these bosses and stuff, like what what work are you doing on them? Yeah, this is this is the toughest question to answer. The easiest explanation is I make magic and blow things up. That's that's the, right. the baseline, but I'd like to further break it down. And you have elements of the game. You have all the environments. You have all of the characters with their animation, the enemies with their animation. And then you have the user interface. And everything else around that visually is VFX. So, you know, uh, fog in the atmosphere, uh, all the attack trails and all the impacts, all that stuff is visual effects. So it's a little different from film where film, you know, the entire game would be visual effects, but in games, it's really uh, that subset. So a lot of particle simulation. What's a typical day like for you? Do you like walk in and they're like, today we're going to have you do the effects on a hammer swinging or, or like how, how is it, you know, how are 
I guess, assignments given to you. Yeah, sometimes it's exactly like that. Uh, usually design and animation will be working on a new weapon or a new monster or a new boss, and that'll get passed on to our team. And I work with three other really amazing VFX artists, and we will uh, sometimes be able to pick and choose. Sometimes it gets doled out to us, and we'll go into whatever that particular task is, whether it's a hammer swing or whether it's a... you know, a, a boss firing off a, a giant shockwave and we'll look at that source animation or source design and then we'll, what I like to call dressing it or treating it with VFX. So um, just making it more, making it extra. That's what the kids say, yeah, right? Like extra. Giving it that like punch. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So actually that's a great example. So like Ryu in Street Fighter, when he does a punch, there's like a really cool streaky trail on it and then there's kind of a circular impact and I would make that trail an impact if I were working on Street Fighter. How has the work changed since the release? Has it dropped off or are you guys just as busy as, you know, right before release? Are you working on the next thing? Like what like what what's going on with the work since the game came out? Almost all of the above. You know, it's all it's right. This studio is great. I love Gunfire Games. I haven't been there long, but I love it. When they say, you know, work-life balance is important to us, they totally back it up. And so we had Very a cool. That's great to hear. A really great push um, leading up to release where we were working hard and long. And then things relaxed just a little bit uh, after the initial release. There were patches that went out. And then we kind of almost immediately started working on uh, extra content, DLC. And so... There's like- they have a pretty good roadmap, right? I think I saw that there was like a, a well-defined roadmap for the future of that game. We've got plans. There's some really cool stuff coming down the pipe. Okay. And I think uh, just this last week, we released Hardcore Mode. Pretty sure that happened. And uh, no, I, I know for a <laughs> fact that happened. someone else's job, apparently. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't, I'm not a community manager. I'm not a, a director. I, I don't control these things. But yeah, we released Hardcore Mode, which is like a permadeath mode that's uh, extra hard. Are you, are you able to discuss like what's what's next for gunfire or like right now is everybody just like hammering on the uh the roadmap for remnant we are almost all working on remnant content there are plans okay don't well, i don't want you to say anything no no I, I, I think i, just, I, I think that's about it you, you know could. we're not directionless okay. let's just say that we're not directionless. all right i'm glad to hear that there's probably some exciting stuff in the pipes mm-hmm. um let's talk a little bit about someone should make this uh which i i will say is an excellent podcast well, for anybody you. who hasn't who hasn't listened to it for those few people who haven't listened to it, tell them what it is. Yeah. I mean, Danish has been on and he's talked about it a lot. And so I'll, I'll kind of echo everything he says, you know, we get together and we pitch ideas for video games. Everybody knows that coming up with an idea for a game is easy, but what our podcast presupposes is maybe it isn't. Okay. It's not, it's, (laughs) it's not. Jared and I have been on Jared and I have been on the podcast and I I thought like oh I've got this I've got this great idea and then when I try and like put it into words like I have this idea in my head but trying to like articulate what I want the game to be it becomes immediately obvious that I don't know what I'm doing <laughs> and everyone <laughs> else is like oh kind of like this game you're like no no not really it's been really interesting you know we this whole thing started with just coffee break conversations and then we started recording everything and we are We've recorded 39 episodes. We've released, I think, 30, low 30s episodes. So about maybe like 31, 32 episodes. And there definitely are points where the well is dry. And then there will be this deluge of ideas that come in. And we have we have not had a sour episode yet, which is, at least in my opinion, we have not had a sour episode yet, which is incredible because 
39 times three is a lot. Yeah. It's a lot of ideas. I think it's 117. I'll take your word for it. Math was not my strong suit. (laughs) (laughs) Good thing Um, there's no math in programming. Right. (laughs) Do you find that over time you're, it's easier to come up with pitches or is it, I don't know, like, I guess like writing where sometimes it's, it's got to be just like a really great hard. exercise of, you know, just being able to pitch yourself at, at work or wherever you are. Cause you know, people don't get to exercise that, that often. Sure. And if even more than that, I think it's a great mental exercise to be thinking about design and, and being able to rapid fire that stuff off. I mean, well, you know, in a larger sense, rapid fire, but uh, you know, it's one idea a week. And so for me, it's really, an exercise in design, just flexing those muscles because mm-hmm. I'm not a game designer. I love game design, but I'm not a game designer. And so having an outlet for that and then also having a challenge to be doing that for me is really great. And, uh, you know, when we started, I was very narrative focused. And so I've really tried to focus more mechanically as time has gone on. Good man. And so you're a man after my own heart. <laughs> I love that stuff. Do you find that doing the podcast has made things easier in your professional setting are you are you able to translate those skills to the workplace probably i have no idea i I think if anything it maybe helps me think outside of my own functional fixedness which is very real in uh in anything artistic you know i I find it fascinating everybody kind of has their own ideas of whatever it is that you might be pitching creatively but i find it fascinating listening to other people how they pitch you know not even necessarily what they're saying but how people you know get their ideas across and i think that that's a really cool aspect of the show as well is being able to see the different personalities and, and how they present those things 100% yeah absolutely yeah getting that different perspective on things is great cuz it's like you said it's not what they're saying it's how they're saying it and you see what they find important or what they're really excited about in the way that they pitch yeah, exactly. When we had Danish on the show, he had talked about like the possibility of doing a like a game jam, which I thought sounded like the the perfect next step for the podcast. Have have any of those plans come along or is that still just in the chamber for the for the future? So, I'm really glad Danish mentioned that because back when I was still at WB with them, I had pitched a game jam. I thought it would be perfect for the format of the show. I mm-hmm. I pitched a t-shirt line where we do like fake box art for the different ideas that we have. I've, that's awesome. Oh too. yeah, that's great. I, there, there are a lot of ideas in there. Nothing, nothing concrete. Maybe this will help put some pressure on the guys to to make something. I think once we and our, our following has been increasing as time goes on. So thank thank you everyone who's who's been listening to the show. But I think maybe when we get you know closer to fifty, hundred episodes, and there's a lot of material there, a lot of different types of games. Maybe maybe then we'll have the listenership and the the library to put something together like that. An art contest for for box art that could go on a T-shirt or something. Oh my gosh, that's fun. like that's so perfect. Okay, so we have a contest going on right now where you can win a copy of Remnant from the Ashes if you listen to our last episode and this week's episode. Uh, we have instructions there. You can email or tweet at us your game ideas with the hashtag Make This Contest, and you could win a copy on your platform of choice. So. Perfect. Very cool. Yeah, we've I've retweeted that, so you can go to our Twitter account and you can see the uh, how to how to find the information about entering that contest. And I will make sure that when this episode goes up, we retweet it a second time because that game looks real, real good, and uh, people should get their hands on it. And to enter, it's it's not even that hard. You just have to do all the work of designing a video game. Right. Right. It's, it, that's the easy part. <laughs> that's the easy part. Send in your pitch deck completed, and uh, maybe, maybe you'll get a game. 
Well, congratulations on, on the on the growth of the show. And Thank for you. anybody that is listening to our show and has not checked out Someone Should Make This, someone should go check that out. If you have an interest in what we're doing here, they're, they're doing a, a similar thing uh, in, a, in a different roundabout kind of way, but it, it is all about uh, about game design. And there's some great discussions, some great ideas going on over there. So So check it out. Someone should make this. We're talking about random number generators today. Jared, why don't you, why don't you lay a little history on us? Random number generation as a concept in, in games or otherwise uh, games of chance. People have been interested in that for a long time. There have been 4,000-year-old dice found in the Middle East indicating chance and luck gaming. Uh, I've been a part of that culture for a long time. If we get closer to our centuries, we have Alan Turing, one of the fathers of computer science and artificial intelligence, he was born in 1912 and died in 1954. He was famous, obviously, for his work in AI and computing. He also helped break codes used by the Germans in World War II, and that helped lead to the understanding of program-based computing. There is an article by an author named Carl Teschian. The article is called A Brief History of Random Numbers, in, in that the, right, the, in 1951, randomness was finally formalized into a real computer, the Ferranti Mark I, which shipped with a built-in random number instruction that can generate 20 random bits at a time using electrical noise. The feature was actually designed by Alan Turing, but it was maddening for some programmers, according to this article, because it created so much uncertainty in an environment that was already so unpredictable. So there we have it, the origins of random number generators. As long as, yeah, you needed some kind, you needed to uh, simulate some kind of variance of, of unknown origin, then that's what we did. But was it unknown, Jared? Was it truly unknown? My programming knowledge goes as far as like my sophomore level of high school, C++, I think was the class that we took. And yep. uh, we used some RNG, but that was tied to the clock of the computer so it wasn't even really mm -hmm. true rng random numbers are see i i spent most of my time researching this episode just like diving into like what defines true randomness and it gets real real deep like quantum level deep it's magic uh, it, it's it's like beyond my comprehension like how a, a random number is truly defined i mean jeff um, i think jeff goldblum sums it up in, in jurassic park He's talking about the uh, uh, chaos effect. I'm pretty sure that just teaches you everything you need to know. Well, is there anything we can't learn from Jeff Goldblum? There, I would posit that there is not. Thank God he's getting that TV show. <laughs> so we get to see how he lives his day-to-day -day life. This is typically where we move into our definition of RNG, but I think that this is going to be quite we, difficult. Are we going to get like existential with this? Maybe, and it's probably going to be way more convoluted than is necessary for a discussion around video games. But... Uh, this is what interests me, so it's what we're doing. And my favorite part is to watch our guests squirm. So Jeff, yeah, <laughs> when we're talking about uh, when we're talking about RNG, what what does that mean to you? How do we define RNG? That's uh, that is a big question, as as you've you've already said. I RNG is so much of games, and so uh, finding the source of that is is definitely interesting. As you guys probably know from your research, and you know, I'm a big Vsauce fan. You you. Uh, brought a Vsauce video from Michael on on what is random mm. and nothing is random, almost nothing is random, right? But in, in the but, universe, but nothing is random, right? Let that let that sink in, people. No, <laughs> yeah, okay, the, the tangible enough. nothing, right? 
So, yeah, I mean, you guys kind of talked about it too when you're in high school doing C++. And I, I think my freshman year or sophomore year in college, I did a, a C++ class. And it's all time-based, right? Like the, it's a, it's a mm-hmm. table of numbers and you're just starting at a different place based on the CPU clock, I, I believe. Yeah, I think in C++, that's what it was. It was the CPU clock. Yeah. And so it's the opposite of random, right? Even randomness on something as simple as a dice, like 66666 is 100% random. So this is where the definition for random, I think, gets kind of muddied for a lot of people in that you think when you roll when you roll a dice, you got a you know random chance of rolling any one of the numbers on there. But understanding, being able to know the circumstances, the, the initial conditions when that dice is rolled would allow you to predict the outcome of that dice. Right. So we tie these random number generators and programming to things like the CPU clock or Alan Turing tied it to electrical noise in the computer. Some of these measure the background radiation of the universe to determine these random numbers. But the idea is that these numbers are not random because the outcomes can be predicted if we know all of the conditions that lead to them. So while something as chaotic and varied as the background radiation of the universe or electrical noise could be very, very difficult to predict. It's not technically impossible. It may just be out, you know, it may be beyond the the bounds of our capabilities right now. Steven, what is fate? Ooh, that's a, well, if, if we want to talk about fatalism, that's a whole other thing, right? I don't think we want to get into that in this podcast because I could talk fatalist philosophy for a very, very long time. And then I feel very weird after that. Yeah. I mean, I think the thing is, like, there's nothing is truly random, right? I think you already said that. And um, mm-hmm. it's, it's like it's like varying levels of obfuscating the circumstances in which the solution is arrived at. Yeah, exactly. This is why scientists, you know, look at quantum computing for these kinds of things. Because the only way for something to truly be random is, is for it to, like, be devoid of an origin. For us to not be able to measure the circumstances that lead to the generation of um, some data. And I, I think it's important to the discussion around video games also because, you know, especially if you're watching people who stream the same game all day long every week, they can get frustrated where games are like, oh, it's just RNG. Like, this is just up to RNG. And it's like, well, it's really not just as simple as that. Like, everything's up to RNG, mm-hmm. but like, to what degree... Is that affecting the core mechanics of the game? Uh, that's a different story. So I, th- I still think that that's an important part of the discussion. I also think the other important part of the discussion, maybe the main reason that I would go so far as to talk about like quantum computing in an episode where we should just be talking about loot boxes, you know, is um, that I think human beings are very, very bad at understanding numbers, especially like very, very large or very, very small numbers. Like we just, we just don't have a good concept of, of what this stuff means. Our, our lizard brains were not designed to comprehend the concept of true randomness. So when we talk about things like loot boxes, right? Like even at a very simple level, something like loot boxes, I think, ba- I think people are bad at understanding how odds work. You know, they, if you think that something is truly random, you think you might have, you know, oh, I, I could win this. It, it's random. And instead there's, things working in the background that could affect the outcomes in ways that you, uh, that, well, we human beings are, are not necessarily very good at considering. Spend a weekend um, at a casino and uh, you'll get a harsh lesson. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've done that many times and I still haven't learned my lesson, Jared. <laughs> Bad at numbers, everybody. <laughs> um, all right. Have we gone, have we, 
have we all taken our mushrooms? Everyone is it kicking in for everyone else, or is it just me? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm okay, feeling good. it. How are how are random number generators typically implemented in games, Jeff? I know I mentioned loot boxes, but you said there's lots of examples of this. So what are the common ways that that randomness is incorporated into game design? And you know, this is something that when when you posed the topic to me, it immediately jumped out because of course, like you said, the first thing anyone thinks about is loot boxes. But it goes so much deeper in so many ways where randomness or programmatic functions are a core part of developing a game and the final experience of the game. You know, to get into the weeds a little bit, when you have a program like Substance Designer or Substance Painter where everything is, all the textures and materials are being generated by algorithms, you have randomness. You have, in all of my work as a VFX artist, all the particle simulation, you're introducing randomness so it doesn't look the same every time. You know, if you saw an explosion 500 times in Call of Duty, you don't want it to look exactly the same every time because it's going to look artificial. And and so really, we're putting randomness in almost every level of game development and game design so that, in a sense, the game feels more real and less artificial. So uh, you, you talked about um, RNG and speedruns and stuff like that. So the types of attacks that an enemy is going to do are usually weighted between different options and which one they choose is somewhat random. So if you run across a bridge and there's an enemy there, you know, three out of five times he might swing at you with a melee weapon. One out of five times he might shoot at you with a, a ranged weapon. And then that fifth time, maybe he just chases you. So there's so many elements of a game that are random before we even start to talk about rewards. And of course, rewards are, are what a lot of players rightfully so focus on when it comes to randomness. So there are these different levels of randomness that are working in the favor of players and then a few that sometimes feel like they're working against the players. We talked a little bit about loot boxes and you're talking about enemy behavior. And I think that these are examples of randomness that are used in different ways, right? Like like one of these is randomness sort of as a reward and one of them is randomness that is used to actually influence the the gameplay the experience of of playing a game is it important for us in this discussion to like distinguish between those two or is or is all of this part of the same discussion of randomness i think there might be two discussions of randomness but i think that when we talk about rng it i think it gets a bad rap because of that loot box discussion, because of the reward discussion. And mm -hmm. RNG really isn't evil. It just is a tool that is sometimes used for or against players. And even when it's quote unquote used against players in the form of rewards, it is also sometimes for players. For instance, if, if you were to play uh, Destiny, we I know we love talking about Destiny here. Mm -hmm. So if you play I'll Destiny and you do a strike, the strike is fun. And maybe you don't get the prestige award for that strike. I can't remember what they call it. The the hand, the god rolled weapons that Bungie puts together. Maybe you don't get that. Mm -hmm. Maybe you just get like a regular random weapon, and it's pretty good. But now you have a carrot there, and depending on that RNG, it can either feel like a grind, or it can feel like climbing a mountain and, and finally cresting the peak and being victorious. So that that kind of reward balance is, is I think its own discussion on top of everything else. Cause I think of RNG in games as like a haunted house. When you go through a haunted house, if it's exactly the same each time, that second time you go through, you know, the second time you watch sixth sense, 
not 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 as exciting. But if it were slightly different, then now there's something interesting and it's more meaningful to go through again. Yeah, I was also thinking about how important it is to interactivity. You know, that's what a video game typically brings to the table over cinema or film. And it's just uh, without that, it would be the same experience every time. And, you know, everybody wants the most bang for their buck these days. So playing a game that would be predictable would be boring. Yeah. And I think the biggest element of RNG, and I might be blowing your minds with this, is the player. That's why watching Ninja Whoa. play right, Fortnite. They're, they're I'm in, the RNG. They're definitely kicking in for they're kicking in for Jeff now. All right, now just I mean, gotta wait for Jared to get up. Think that's about it. You know, you watch Ninja <laughs> play Fortnite. That's a lot different than what I play Fortnite. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And yeah. So the way that all these systems are interacting, it's like you were talking about that. You know, the complexity of the problem, the unpredictability of that final result. The player is a big part of that, and so a lot of the systems we develop, you know, the enemy behavior, the particle effects, the all the different systems that work in a game are reacting to the player. And so when you watch, you know, person A play through a game, it's going to be different from person B, even if it's a linear experience, because there's all these little things along the way that are going to change, some more meaningful mm-hmm. than others. Are you playing anything right now that, that uses RNG, good or bad? Like, what are you jamming on right now that you can really see the RNG in? I just finished Control, and I've been playing Outer Worlds. Oh, nice. I just started that. Control is amazing. Game of the year for me. Right on. Yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a big Sam Lake fan, so I'm excited to get deeper into it. Yeah, so all the rewards that you get from enemy drops are, are random in that game. And, you know, that's that, that larger, more public-facing discussion on RNG. And then same mm-hmm. thing with Outer Worlds. Uh, it is an RPG, and so you have, you know, bullet accuracy, which is RNG. You have, or bullet spread, really, and recoil. You have enemy drops, you know, when you're looting their bodies. Uh, same thing with containers out in the world. So Outer Worlds is definitely more heavy on that reward side of RNG. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, in a game like Control, right? Like a, like a single player, and, and for the most part, the, at least as far as I've gotten into the game, the, the narrative is pretty linear. Why is the randomness important in a game like that? Because, you know, Jared and I have been playing a lot of Apex Legends together. Mm-hmm. And this is a game where the the loot that you find in the world is randomized and i think it the rng works really well in a game like apex legends because like every time you drop somewhere it's a very different experience because you might get a shield you might get a gun you might get the best gun in the game you know you could get a legendary item whatever it is so there's like it makes the the act of looting thrilling like exhilarating exciting and in a game like control i'm curious like what the benefit of having drops be random is for the player where Typically, you're only going to go through, you know, most people are going to go through the experience one time. So no one would really understand if something was random or not. Yeah, that's a great question. I think there's there's two elements in a game like Control. And this kind of goes back to that haunted house, almost literally in this case, analogy where every time... Haunted first house. Right. The oldest house. Oldest. Oh, yeah. Oldest house. Sorry. Yeah. I'm, I'm still I'm still early in. I, I got to get all the terminology I am, down. I am so deep. I read... I took the time every time I picked up a piece of lore in that game. And I actually just listened to your lore episode. So that's perfect in my mind. But everything I picked up, I read through and the the larger narrative that it pieces together is just amazing. Anyway, uh, so there, there's two things in in control. When you go into a room, there's like a cooldown. So if you've already cleared that room, it'll take five, 10 to 15 minutes for enemies to spawn there again. So it's kind of safe for a little bit. But I think that timer, that cooldown is actually slightly random and so sometimes i would go back into a room and immediately there would be enemies and that keeps it interesting for me as a player because i'm not just running through empty spaces 
And even the enemies that are spawning are a little bit different every time. There might be two demolition experts, there might be a sniper, or there could be uh, two of the floating guys and uh, just like a regular trooper. So those things keep it interesting for me as the player. And then the drops influence your upgrade trees more than anything. And so playing through the game, I maxed out all but one of my weapons and the order that I was maxing them out just based on the resources I was getting, because they all required different resources, changed the way I played the game because I was using weapons that were more powerful. And so that was always changing a little bit. So sometimes I would be using the shotgun. Sometimes I'd be using like the sniper pistol. Sometimes I'd be using the kind of like, uh, I think they call it charge, the grenade launching one based on what I had just upgraded. So it actually changes a lot of my experience as the player. Yeah, and that game gives you a lot of tools to play in different ways. You know, you can you can stay at range, you can get in close, and I think that the RNG of the enemy types really helps explore all those different gameplay options and use those tools. I guess maybe my question is, what would be different if they curated that experience? And I, I I'm I'm asking that because it's essentially a single player game. Like, what? Why not just say like the next time you get a drop, it's going to be for your for the the sniper pistol tree and then kind of encourage you through a curated experience to use that configuration for the gun for a while and then say like okay for the next part you know we're going to spawn these enemies the the heavy enemies i i maybe maybe i'm doing a poor job of asking this question but i i think like to me rng is at its best in like multiplayer experiences and in single player narrative experiences i almost don't understand why the like drops and rewards are are randomized well let me let me say it this way like in a game like resident evil 7 for example um it wouldn't really make a ton of sense if the like the best weapons and and the puzzle items were placed in different areas all the time it's just not really how those games are built thematically in control this isn't really much of a spoiler but um the 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 building you're in is constantly changing uh, in a chaotic way that they're you know, kind of there to understand the building itself is sort of alive in a way. Um, so I think that the randomness of everything sort of ties thematically to the narrative in that way. Yeah, I would 100% agree with that. To me, I, I think that's a really cool way to look at it. I, I, I know that there are other games that that's not the case and things are still RNG in a single player game. There's an expectation, I guess, that maybe, maybe it's just like my history with Remedy, my history with those styles of third-person shooters where I, I maybe I walk into a game with an expectation and I, and I'm, again I'm not saying the RNG is bad in any way obviously you guys are having great experiences with the way that it's changing up the gameplay for you and, and I think that's uh that's incredible like that's one of the I think the hardest things for me sometimes is like I'll, I'll fall in love with a gun and then that's all I use for 80 percent of the game and then afterwards I'm like well what was the point of all you know the 20 other guns in the game but um I think about a game like Borderlands, right, where those rewards are randomized. Weapons drop with different kinds of elements and different stat rolls and stuff. And it, to me, it makes sense in that world. Like it, they, they put a lot of emphasis on the randomness being the draw of that game. But in Control, it, it feels maybe um, unnecessary. Maybe again, I'm not. I, I'm trying not to like use any kind of negative terminology here. Um, because again, you guys are both obviously having like really great experiences with the way the RNG is incorporated, but, um, I'm just trying to make sense of it. I think you're hitting on some really important things. And I think the distinction between a game like Control and Resident Evil 7 
is the way that the game prioritizes and manifests player agency. And so in Control, it is in some ways a power fantasy, like a lot of games are, like Borderlands is. And then, like you were saying, thematically, I think those sorts of randomized encounters work with the narrative of the game as well. And so in something like a power fantasy, allowing the player to make their own priorities on weapons or sometimes shake up those priorities plays into that power fantasy loop. Whereas in Resident Evil 7, the idea of player agency is in question the entire time. It's a survival horror game. And so there is, uh, in those kinds of games, an oppression on player agency, which is part of the fun. You know, you never feel like a god in those games. And so if you're already you know, oppressing player agency in that way, making rewards or pickups randomized ends up feeling unfair or cheap. You know, you can kind of have one or the other, but doing both ends up feeling bad for the player. And I think that's probably where something like that comes in, where depending on the genre, depending on the goals of the game, narratively, mechanically, you can use RNG to great effect as, as well as you're doing it smartly. What game in your mind uses the concept of randomness to the best effect you've ever seen? Is there something that springs to your mind as like the absolute pinnacle of RNG? That is such a big question because as we've already discussed, games use it differently. And Mm -hmm. I I wholly agree that Apex Legends, the way that they dole loot out on the map is is really smart because I've never played a match of Apex where I I should say I rarely have played a match of Apex where... I didn't at least have the chance to pick up something meaningful. And if if I did fail to do that, it was my own fault for dropping hot or or doing something else stupid. Yeah, that is such a big question. I have no idea. If you believe the doc, Dr. Disrespect, he believes that the uh the rewards, the the loot in Apex should be predetermined. Uh, do you have any thoughts or opinions on how that would change the the game of Apex? So that's interesting because it's almost like formalizing a meta wherein you will be locked into a tier based on where you drop or where you choose to drop. And for a low-level player, that might be fine. But for a high-level player like Doc, now 80% of his matches are dropping into Skulltown. I haven't played Season 3, so I don't know the new map as well. But, you know, in, in Season 1 and 2, it'd be like 80% of his matches, he's going to drop into Skulltown, and it becomes the same thing every time. Does that keep his interest? Does that keep my interest as a viewer? And I think those are the questions that a dev would answer and say, no. And that's why it is, it's it's a weighted randomness, but it's still random. Yeah, that's interesting. I, my initial feeling was to recoil at the very idea of the predetermined placement for loot. But do you ever drop in that game and like open 10 crates and don't find a gun and then just get killed by the person <laughs> who dropped and, and pulled a purple shield and an R99 out of the first bin they opened? I've definitely had games where I've picked up nothing but scopes and stocks and yep. had... and. You know what's funny about that, though, is those are going to happen in, in low-tier areas of the game, and all the really good players are dropping in mid- and high-tier areas of the game, and there's a self-balancing that happens in matches like that where I might not see another team for two, three minutes, which gives me the opportunity to move to an adjacent location and find something that I can use. Do those the, the positive experiences, the times when you're the guy who opens a crate and gets the purple armor, does that outweigh the times when you were the uh, the unlucky one on the receiving end of the R99? Those instances are not my problem with the game. I have only ever felt bad playing that game because of other players. Oh, really? Yeah. Please do explain. I uh, 
I've actually found Apex to be pretty non-toxic so far. There was one instance, and, and thankfully I don't remember anybody's screen name, but I had one instance. Otherwise, we'd put them on blast <laughs> right now. You know, I feel we'd be bad. coming for you. Maybe I'm I'm just too soft a player. I don't know. But I, I was in one match, and these two people were obviously on mic together, not pinging, doing their own thing. And it just it, it snowballed in the on-screen chat. And that was the last time I used chat. <laughs> I mean, sometimes in that game you really do just like develop a synergy and like that, the matchmaking is, is pretty random, right? So depending on who you get on your team, that's that's part of the RNG. And it doesn't necessarily mean like they're a good or bad player. It's just how you play together and cooperate. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Because I'm sure in another circumstance, those same two players we could have killed, you know, and I've yeah. had amazing matchups with with randomly chosen teammates. So. And that's what makes, I think, games like Apex interesting to me is because there are there are so many unknowns. It's just every match I know is going to be different than the last versus something like Counter-Strike, which has been around forever and people are, are really good at that, but it's kind of a, a known quantity. It's like people know their, their spots on the map and the, the maps don't ever really change and um, they know how their guns are, you know, where they're going to get their guns from and how that's going to work. So that interests me less because I'm just not super uh, good at, you know, the Twitch based shooting like that. And I, I enjoy being able to react to different situations versus uh, just, you know, memorizing the maps themselves. Yeah. Well, and those are two very different experiences. And I think the RNG plays a big part in why they're so different, right? Like um, something like Counter-Strike, where there is so little that is truly random. Um, I think like the maybe the most random thing outside of player behavior in that game is where exactly you your character starts a match so there's like a spawn zone but you can spawn anywhere within that zone so if you're the person who has to watch mid on dust it, it but you spawn like far away from it it takes you a couple seconds to get over there to fill your role and that's like maybe the most random element of that game so now what you're talking about is these different experiences, one that favors technical proficiency in the case of Counter-Strike and one that favors your ability to adapt on the fly in something like Apex. And the the randomness is such a big part of what, what differentiates those styles of games uh, and the styles of gameplay that are, that are there. And that's going to be really difficult now for people who are seeing the potential of esports and, and trying to decide how to develop a game. Like, do we want our game to appeal to you know, the, the professional players where, because, you know, RNG uh, is not really highly looked upon when you have sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars on the line. So um, I could see that affecting how games are made at, at the base level. If your plans are, you know, we want this to be an esport, which I feel like if you say that at the beginning, that almost never works out. Well, and this also makes me think of speed runs, right? And, and Jeff, I know you're, I know you're uh, big into speed runs. How, how does RNG affect the way the speedrunning community approaches games. Yeah, I mean, in my limited, and I mostly watch Soulsborne speedruns. So in my limited experience, it comes down to two or three things. One of them is that randomness of an enemy's attack. You'll hear speedrunners say, I've never seen this enemy do that. And mm -hmm. obviously that's not true because they've played through the game a thousand times, but it's something that's so rare that they don't think about it. It's not programmed into the way they approach the game. Same thing with bosses. Uh, you know, when you go to Vicar Amelia, if you hesitate for a quarter second, she's gonna do a swipe attack and you're not gonna be able to get that fourth stagger on her left arm. So the enemy thing is one. The next element would be that player again, where a lot of skips in these games need to be almost pixel perfect. And if the 
player is just a little bit off, if they're watching chat, you know, if they're tired, if they've already, you know, run this three times, they might miss that skip. And now, you know, their speed run is a little bit delayed because they were, you know, three pixels to the left. RNG is interesting in speedruns because I feel like games that have too much RNG are typically not great candidates to even be speedrun. I'm a big fan of The Binding of Isaac, and that actually might be one of my favorite games to incorporate RNG um, because it changes the dungeon layouts. And it's it also kind of like changes... a core mechanic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I would say probably a core mechanic of most um, modern roguelikes is that there's you know some form of permadeath, and then it randomly jumbles the the levels every time you start a new game and also your pickups the the items that you're getting throughout the dungeon are randomized and to me that makes for a very very fun like replayable i i have probably hundreds of hours if maybe if not like thousands of hours of binding of isaac time and it takes 30 to 40 minutes to complete the game right so like i've beaten that game Many, 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 many times. But the reason I keep coming back to it is because of that randomness. The the idea that I could get a, uh, you know, like I could see how two items interact that I've never seen before because I've never picked them both up at the same time. That's very exciting to me. I mean, I, it exists, but you don't see a lot of Binding of Isaac speedruns because that randomness just doesn't lend itself to the way that speedruns are typically done. You know, a lot of speedrunning is about learning precise routes and utilizing specific tricks to get through levels as quickly as possible. And uh, something like Binding of Isaac, where, you know, the the first boss you fight could be Ragman. And suddenly it's taking you four minutes to, to get through the first floor of this dungeon. And that's not really like what the, uh, the speed run is at its at its core. And you will see people do seeded speed runs where they will compete on the same seed of the game where it's they're running the exact same dungeon to try to compete for a fastest time. But I, I feel like like those games that have a lot of RNG just typically don't lend themselves to the speedrunning of games. Yeah, I would say that's <laughs> entirely accurate. You, you touched on the seed thing. And, you know, if if you're seeding a run, are you actually speedrunning that game? You know, I think that's a question that the speedrunning community always, you know, there's there's all these different types of runs. There's any percents, there's all bosses, there's all achievements. And mm-hmm. so how you define the speed run sometimes, I guess, needs to take into account that sort of thing. You know, for Remnant from the Ashes, a lot of our community was like, how are we going to speed run this? Can we get a seated mode so we can do exactly that? But my question is, are you playing that game or are you playing a version of that game? Let's talk about poor implementations of RNG. Jared, I feel like it's been a little bit since I've heard from you. What? It, why don't I throw this to you? What, what game doesn't use RNG very well, in, in your opinion? Um, there are probably a few, but at the time of this recording, Diablo 4 was just announced, and that reminded me of the launch of Diablo 3. Uh, at, the, at the launch of that, there was you know a, a few things wrong with the game, but one of them for a while was the loot drops. It, the entire point of the Diablo games pretty much is doing the same runs over and over again, but you're also like getting random loot. Uh, and the loot is the numbers go up and it's fun and that's the carrot on the stick. Uh, but for some reason, the to get any kind of decent gear uh, at the beginning of that game's life was difficult. And it kind of took away a lot of the joy of that. And part of that, I think, was tied to the they had a real money auction house where good items could be sold for actual currency that you could spend outside the game. And uh, that was not why people came to a Diablo game. 
people from Diablo 2 really enjoyed finding that good loot and it was it was that was an entertaining loop for them and uh, you took that away and there wasn't a whole lot of incentive to do that unless you know that was like your job and you're running like a bot farm now do you do you truly believe that the auction house was the reason that they had the loot um the loot pool set up the way that they did i i mean i can't i don't, i think that they probably denied that but i don't the the changes of the loot drops and the auction house going away were sort of coinciding so i don't know I don't know for sure. It, to me, the the sentiment from Diablo 2 to Diablo 3 seemed to change quite a bit. Like I wasn't a big enough fan of either to really like get involved in the conversation. I just didn't enjoy the game for a while. And then later when I came back to it, I think after the, the expansion came out is when I started playing again. Um, it was a lot more fun seeing bigger drops and, and cooler weapons coming out. So from my perspective, probably. Now, is there something about the implementation of the auction house in that game that undercut the excitement of the loot drops you know a big reason that people play diablo is for the loot you know to see the the all the loot explode out of a boss and pick it up and then go through your menu and see you know what what item you picked up that's better than the one you have equipped like that's a that's a fun loop but did the auction house undercut that experience by giving you a way to essentially pay to just get the things that you want like did it did it diminish the sense of reward the typical loot in the game it's a weird thing because Diablo 3 doesn't even really have a PvP mode. So it's really you're in a PvE game. Uh, what are you? Why are you taking shortcuts to get the loot? Like if you're not having fun playing a game and you're and you're spending money to do that, like are you just competing on leaderboards? Um, to me, like a, a leaderboard alone is not enough to really care to to spend money to get better loot in that type of experience. But, you know, psychologically, if I get a, a drop and I'm like, oh, this seems really good. And then I go and just curiously look at the auction house and there's something that's like probably 100 times better at the same level. It's a little disconcerting. Obviously, there's a balance that's going on there in Diablo. And I, I, I never played Diablo 3, so I'm, all, of, all of what I'm saying is sort of just based on speculation and uh, theory going on in my head. But in rewards... This And again, this is where I think human beings are very bizarre creatures. It's been proven that randomness, the randomness of rewards, like even the randomness of providing a reward is an excellent motivator, especially in cases of things like productivity. In the work environment, like if you reward staff for doing something every time they do it versus sometimes like on a random basis, they, they've found that like people are more willing to They'll work harder if the rewards are doled out randomly than if they're guaranteed. And I think that's like that's such a bizarre part of our psychology. But that, but that's huge in gaming, right? In a game like Diablo, again, like you mentioned, there's not a lot of PvP elements to that game. Why not just have the last boss drop the best gear? Why randomize that at all? Except that we as the players are very responsive to that. Sure. And, uh, it's very odd. Like human beings are very bizarre creatures. I mean, if you look at any games as a service, the, the goal is to keep player playing for the longest amount of time and hopefully generate mm -hmm. revenue out of that. But you know, Diablo three was you pay for it and maybe buy the, the DLC uh, and that's it. So if you get, keep people playing the same thing over and over again, you don't have to make as much content because it kind of makes itself. And like you said, I think it's just a human, it's human nature to enjoy that slow dopamine drip every time you get a reward, right? You want a little bit more, a little bit more versus like 
if you're working towards something that you can clearly see on the horizon, that actually feels like work and not so much like winning or, you know, getting lucky. And that yeah. uh, the dopamine drip is probably not as strong there. Weird. We're weird. We're odd creatures. Jeff, how about you? Are there any games that stick out in your mind as having a poor implementation of randomness? It's like you were saying, developers are either explicitly or implicitly aware of the psychology of, of rewarding players. And there's a balance that needs to be struck with how much are you giving the player? How much are you keeping away from the player? And if you are doing that, but then alongside you offer a path to circumvent the RNG and just get what you want, or a path that looks like it manipulates the RNG when it doesn't, which I think was Battlefront 2's problem, right? Because it's always random and you can pay to re-roll that. You're not actually getting a benefit but you're just getting the rewards quicker. And so it changes the psychology around that. I think it's, it's a delicate balance. You know, I worked in mobile for years before I moved over to Gunfire. And the way that we weighted rewards, the way that we weighted how much we gave to the player versus held back was always being tweaked. And it was very calculated to make sure that, you know, we give the player a lot in the beginning and then we take it away over time to ensure that they play the game more. And I think a lot of developers do this sort of thing. It's mm-hmm. it's not a secret, but you know the ethics of it are constantly in question, and rightfully so. They need to be. So poor implementation just across the board is going to come across whenever a developer has that balance off against the player instead of in favor of the player. So I think that like what you were talking about Diablo three at launch. You know, I played it after a year and so i had a little bit of expansion stuff they had rebalanced the whole thing auction auction house wasn't an issue and i played through the game and it was fun it was fine i never struggled with anything and i never felt cheated out of anything and that also kind of becomes a problem too then like uh, i know destiny has struggled with this a lot as well Is how much are we giving the player if we give them too much if we give them what they want then it becomes boring they only play through it once if we don't give them what they want it becomes grindy and now they don't enjoy playing the game. And so finding that middle ground, and I think that's just a hard thing for a lot of games to do. And some games get very close and other games don't. Destiny is interesting because I feel like I remember someone, either the publisher or one of the developers saying like, we, we want people to like play through Destiny and then just put it on the shelf until like we release more content for it. Like it's not intended to be like a, you know, like a hobby, like something like an MMO might be. They, they wanted people to experience all the content. Um, and then I don't know if that actually translated through to the game in the end, but Destiny Two definitely seems like it suffered from a, a little bit of a crisis of identity because when it first, when Destiny Two first came out, there were no random rolls for weapons the way there was in Destiny One. I was a huge fan uh, we- of that, by the way. I love that when it was just predetermined. Yeah, and I know I'm in the minority there, but I, I thought it was no, great. I, and I'm with I'm with you on that. Because I find I get like this sense like, okay, I can put this game, you know, like I got the thing I want. Now I can put this game down and enjoy something else until they, you know, release the next raid or the next strike. They they eventually changed it over. So now in Destiny 2, it is randomly rolled drops. Now it is feeding those players who are constantly on that grind, um, which was me when Destiny 1 came out before, you know, before I had a kid and I had time to to do a lot of that, like, really grindy stuff. So I think you can definitely see that philosophy change between Destiny 1 to Destiny 2 and then that change sort of back in the middle of Destiny 2's life to the way it is now. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that RNG is a big part of the way that they're obviously positioning it for 
the player retention. Did you guys play uh, No Man's Sky at launch? Yes. Oh, yeah. Was the was the RNG weird in that? Because I feel like people who listen to the show know I'm I'm a huge fan of machine learning and procedural generation. I think that's going to be a big part of the future of of game design. But something like No Man's Sky seemed like the half step in that direction that nobody asked for, at least at launch. Because I know there was a lot of stuff. It was like, oh, you know, like there's millions of different possible creatures you can find, but they were just sort of the combination of like eight body types, eight head types, eight leg types. And it became like very obvious, you know, what was going on. So you could see, you know, like the randomness was was very visible. And when the game launched, that was essentially all that that was the hook, right? It's like, go to these planets and see all the permutations. It's like, well, seen 10 planets and I've, I've kind of seen everything that there is. It doesn't really, you know, go beyond that. Uh, was that was that the experience that that either of you had playing No Man's Sky at launch? I avoided a lot of the discussion around that game, so I didn't fall into the hype, you know, that, that everybody was really excited for. I was like, this sounds like a big idea. Let's see how it works out. I was kind of suspicious because they didn't really um, show a ton of gameplay, or I, at least from I, what I had seen. Uh, so anyways, I wanted to be a part of that discussion, but on launch day. And then within like a couple of hours, I had been to two or three planets, and I, I felt like I just had this feeling that I had seen everything that I cared to see. You know, I... I conceptually understood that there's probably really cool things if I continue to play this. Um, but yeah, the seeing the seams in that and seeing how the randomness kind of worked almost immediately kind of turned me off as a player really quickly. Yeah, that that game is interesting. Kind of like you, Jared, I stayed away from a large part of that hype machine leading up to launch. And I played for, I think, three or four weeks when it came out. And for me, I, I was looking at this game. I love space. And if you listen to Someone Should Make This, you probably know that. So it was No Man's Sky, Star Citizen had recently been announced, and then Elite Dangerous was like really coming into its own right at the same time. And No Man's Sky was the really fun, cartoony, more relaxing, casual side to that space sim genre. And so when I went into No Man's Sky, I was like, this is going to be a great game to relax. And I think because of my own perception, I was able to look past a lot of what you're talking about. Because... Mm -hmm. You know, if you have eight of every type of creature or every piece of every creature, right? So there's like eight heads, eight bodies, eight legs, eight wings, eight tails. When you see that first creature, there's a good chance that one of those elements is going to be on the second creature you see because that's just randomness, right? And so the more creatures you see, the more you see the shapes repeated. And sure enough, each one is going to be unique, but you see the seams like like exactly what you just said jared and so that was definitely a problem now after next after beyond i think they've remedied a lot of that definitely and then there just wasn't enough to do it was like it was if you were if you just wanted to be a tourist maybe that was you know enough for some people but like outside of just seeing the things like interacting with them the the consequences for doing anything almost seemed um nil you know it's just like why am i doing this other other than to just get to the next plant and see the next thing sure see for me i would no man's sky is a game that i would play like a tourist like i'm the kind of person who like oh my gosh i get to see an infinite number of planets and an infinite number of of creatures but because the you know those permutations were so limited it just does you know it, it, it didn't appeal to me because especially at launch that was kind of it. Like there wasn't a whole lot else to do besides just kind of go and see the other planets. You, you know, like there was a little bit of upgrade to the ship, 
um, and your character over time, but there was not a lot of uh, anything else to do. So when the draw of the game was the randomness and the randomness kind of falls short, then I think that that's where that game ended up failing, at least for, at least for me. You know, and I, I know a lot of people really love that game at launch, and I know it's come a long way since then. You know, mostly in that there's a lot more stuff to do and you can play with friends now. And I think those are all really great changes for that game. I'm, I'm kind of like having trouble wrapping my mind around this discussion of RNG and also procedural generation. Like, are they the same thing? I think that they stem from the same place wherein it is a system that uses a seed value or uses some starting point to then generate content. And with procedural generation, you're looking at an algorithm which is taking into account artistic choices. You know, Sean Murray talked a lot about how they reined in the random generation so that everything was at least visually pleasing, color palette wise. And then you have random number generation, which is the unbridled version of that. RNG is feeding into other systems, whereas procedural generation is kind of an end of itself. But I think they are kind of in that same family. I think I think a way to think about it, Jared, right, is a a die, right? Like you can the the outcome of the the roll of the die is going to be one through six. Now that outcome is random, but it's still contained within those numbers one through six. You're never going to roll a seven on a die. Sure. So if we so if you talk about like D and D, would you say that the that the procedural generation of D and D could be come from the the dungeon master, and then the RNG would be the dice rolls. Um, that might be, that, that might be a good way to look at analogy? it. I'd have to, I'd have to sit down. I'd have to like meditate on that one for a while to, to, <laughs> My to render a true verdict. <laughs> yeah. Jared, all right. Jared's caught up, Jeff. We're all, we're all yeah, riding this dragon you, together. That's interesting. <laughs> Is human creativity just an algorithm of what we like and what we want and what we can do all multiplied against each other? See, now you're getting, now you're looping right back around to the fatalism discussion. <laughs> <laughs> Like if we understood all of the conditions inside of the human brain. <laughs> well, that's also, also like, oh man, this is like a huge tangent, but like one of the arguments. No, against... Jared, we never do. We never do those <laughs> on this show. <laughs> one of the uh, core arguments against like facial recognition, especially if, you know, it leads to like the you know, police and stuff like that. And warrants is like, that's they're inherently biased because the people who made them have programmed in their own biases, whether they know it or not to be in that algorithm. So, um, you know, like nothing's really truly random in, in almost any aspect when it comes to computing until we get to that like quantum level someday. Soon. I don't know. Google just Google just did it. I think I saw a headline. So I'm pretty sure. And they'll only yeah, use that for good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I, did we get to everything before we before we wrap this up? Or did we uh, did we touch on everything that we wanted to touch on? It's it's a really rough concept. It's hard. It's hard because like my mind always comes back to the like, well, what is the definition of randomness? And then like I I spiral inwards. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a big question and and as I kind of touched on, randomness plays such a large part in a lot of different game systems and a lot of the ways we create games. So you kind of have to pick and choose what are you going to look at? And so if we're just talking about rewards, then that's you know, then we get into ethics and all that other stuff. But if we're talking about just mathematical generation, then that's like a, a giant discussion in and of itself. Well, I mean, I, I guess if we if we kind of touched on everything or or didn't touch on any on everything, I, as I'm, the case may be. Yeah, I'm really interested to hear other people's 
takes on this because for uh, sure for everyone sure. has their own experiences right that's that is that is the well, entire concept of randomness is it, it's unique to everybody's perspective well i want to hear i want to I mean i want to hear our ultimate judgments on this jeff how can the industry improve in the way that it implements rng in games is there something that you see as like the best path forward when it comes to rng i'm going I'm to divide this into two answers so from a development side random generation procedural generation is making development that much easier and allowing us to create experiences for players that feel more true to life in the way that they are chaotic in certain ways. Mm -hmm. So I think continuing to use that in development is is a no-brainer. We're going to keep doing that because it allows us to create a lot more content in a lot little time. Now, you can do that poorly, like (laughs) No Man's Sky launch where everything looks the same, or you can do it really well. Um, With rewards, player rewards, I... I think that human beings should respect and treat other human beings well. And so if your reward structure in a game is not doing that, then I think you need to to look at that and reevaluate why you're doing what you're doing. Obviously, nothing is in a vacuum. Games need to make money. But I, I, I think that that conversation is really important. It's very nuanced. It's a little bit too big for <laughs> the end of a podcast, I think. <laughs> Jared, how about you? What, what do you think the industry can do better when it comes to uh, random number generators in games? Exploit players' expectations and not their vulnerabilities. Make it fun to be surprised and don't feel like I'm trying to get taken advantage of. And I don't, I, you know, No one wants to feel like they're fighting against a system that's actively working against them. So um, you know, very generally speaking, that would be my answer. That's good. I have nothing to add to this. I think you guys both nailed it. I mean... The way I typically answer every question on this show is uh, machine learning. No, I think that <laughs> you're going to kill us all, Stephen. <laughs> no, I think it will make for, I mean, exactly how Jeff said it, like it, it will make for worlds that feel much more alive in the way that uh, the world is itself pretty chaotic and jumbled. So, I, I, I mean, that's that's the kind of game design I'm most excited for. But obviously, that has to be tempered with the uh, the capabilities of the technology, because otherwise, we end up with things like No Man's Sky at launch. And again, I I hate kind of bagging on that game because I think they were very ambitious, and I think the work that they did is necessary to get us to the next step, which is, you know, the the kinds of stuff that that we're talking about here, like how to make a a truly a world that truly feels alive and living. But uh, I don't think we're, we're quite there yet. But I'm, I'm excited for where it goes. I'm excited for where it goes. I'm also excited to hear what uh, our listeners have to say. If you have any questions or comments about random number generators in games or any of our previous topics, you can always email us at podcast at gbfeature.com or connect with us at gbfeature on Twitter. It's been a little bit since we've released an episode. Send your stuff in so we can talk about it next time. Again, email is podcast at gbfeature.com. That's going to do it for this episode. Before we get out of here, I want to thank our guests, Jeffrey Lark and Jeff. Thank you so much for being here, man. It's You're it's very it's good to talk with you again and catch up. Where where can people find your work? How can they keep up with you? So uh, follow Gunfire Games. You know, we just put out Remnant. We're continuing to support it, and uh, I think that our fans are going to be very happy about what we do in the years to come. Beyond that, I am on Twitter. Although, as Steve knows, I'm very bad at Twitter. No, uh, you're, you're, you're fine. It took me only, what, four <laughs> no, or five I mean, months to respond to you? Hey, I, so I don't get some responses at all sometimes, so I will take four to five months later. Okay. Any day of the week, but, or uh, month, as it, as it may be. On Twitter, I am at talking underscore animal, and uh, you can find someone should make this at uh, make this podcast, and of course on iTunes and wherever you listen. 
go check out someone should make this it's a great podcast again if you're listening to this this show obviously you if have you sort of like our show you will definitely if you like sort of like <laughs> yeah if you sort of like our show you'll love their show <laughs> there's definitely a lot of sort of crossover in, in the the concepts although they do it better dare i say yes they're Incredible, incredible guys over there doing doing really good work. So well, thank check you. out Someone Should Make This. Uh, as a reminder, we try to release new episodes of this podcast every two weeks. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss anything, like when we release an episode four weeks later or anything like that. Uh, if you like what we do and you want to help us out, head over to your podcast app of choice and give us a review. I want to thank Kyle Clark for making our theme song. You can check out his show, This Is Rad, anywhere you get podcasts. I'm Stephen Bennett. That's at Stephen underscore the gamer on Twitter. I'm at Jared Bruner. We want to thank you, the listener, for taking the time to listen to us chat about video games. This has been Game breaking feature remember it's okay to disagree just don't be a dick about it that was a weird inflection i put on that was random <laughs>